0: Welcome to Community Vineyard Church Podcast, a community of believers who passionately worships the Lord Jesus Christ, declares His truth, and shares His life with a world in need. Now, for this week's message. Our topic for today is hijacked Romans. Now, many of you guys may know this, many of you guys don't know this, um, but Romans chapter 9 is one of the primary chapters in the Bible that many Calvinists use in support of their doctrinal beliefs. Um, And uh, so that's kind of where we're going to dive in today. I'm going to hopefully give you uh, enough of a uh, background on Calvinism so you know what it is and so it makes a little bit more sense, but... So I want to start with the story. In in 1853, to me, this is one of the the most fascinating history stories uh, related to Calvinism. So in 1853, American warships docked off the coast of Japan, demanded that the country open up its borders for trade. Now, previous to this, if you guys didn't know this, Japan was an isolationist country. They would not let anybody in or out of their country. They were just totally closed off, um, except for the Dutch. It's kind of strange, right? Like, there would be, many countries would try to come in and they'd try to, you know, build a foothold there and, and try to start trading with the Japanese. And the Japanese would just kill them all, except for the Dutch. Now, why is this? It doesn't make much sense. Well... This, the, the story goes about 50 years prior to that, as all of these different colonies were traveling around, all these different countries were traveling around trying to build colonies and trying to open up trade routes all over the world, um, they allowed the English and the French and the Dutch to come into their country. Now, uh, what often comes with trading at this time period in the 1800s and even before that were missionaries. So missionaries would come and they would stay there and they would begin to preach the gospel and they would start converting all kinds of different people You know in Japan and the emperor did not like this. This was not okay And so he expelled all the Christians and he did not want anybody preaching the gospel in there And he expelled everybody except for the Dutch Now why would he not expel the Dutch? Well the Dutch were Calvinists And they weren't just mild Calvinists, they were like staunch Calvinists, right? And again, for those of you guys who don't know, the idea of Calvinism, there are many different uh, ideas, but one of the main ideas is they don't believe in free will. They believe that everybody was sort of determined before they were born to either be a Christian and spend eternity with, with God or go to hell, And so if you follow that to its logical conclusion, it makes many things kind of obsolete, right? Including evangelism. Evangelism is totally obsolete in the mind of a Calvinist because you were determined before you were even born whether you were going to get saved or not. So they didn't care that the Japanese were all going to hell. They wanted to trade with them, and they weren't going to preach the gospel. They didn't send evangelists there, And so the Japanese didn't have a problem with them. And so the Japanese let the Dutch trade there for 20 or 30 years because they refused to try to evangelize their people. Now that is, to me, it's such a fascinating story, but it illustrates what Calvinism looks like in practice. Now, again, we're going to be diving into this uh, uh, pretty lengthy today and, and next week. And my hope is the truth of the scriptures will emerge. And so that you have a more robust understanding of what Paul is trying to say in Romans 9 and what he's not trying to say in Romans 9. Let's begin with a moment of prayer. Lord. We are a church who loves you. We want to embrace the Spirit, and we want to embrace the truth, Lord. So we turn to your word. We ask you now that the Holy Spirit would illuminate your word for us. We ask you now that, uh, as we do every time we open your word, that we want to know your truth. We want to know what it is that you want to speak to us through these passages today. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. So I'm going to go over a brief history of Calvinism. It was actually started in 1519 as part of, part of the Protestant Reformation. Uh, they were originally sort of coupled together with Lutherans, but pretty quickly they split. Uh, they were started by a guy named Ulrich Zwingli, I'm sure I'm pronouncing that wrong. Um, and he started preaching his preaching ministry in 1519. And the main thing that sort of split him from Luther was that at this time, Luther really, and all throughout his life, Luther really embraced transubstantiation, which is this idea that when you take communion, that it really is the blood of Christ and it really is the body of Christ. Whereas uh, Ulrich, he, he, he said, no, I don't, you know, the essence of God is in there and certainly the Holy Spirit is present. But that actually isn't real blood and, 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 and uh, and flesh. Um, and I could go into a lot more detail. They do. They've created a lot of theology. Okay, so these, this is a very strong um, theological sort of uh, church, and they're also known as the Reformed Church. So if you've ever heard that term, reformers or Reformed Church, that's basically another word for St. Calvinist. And the reason that they use the word Calvinist, or that we use Calvinist, and it's mostly understood that way, is by one of the one of the founding people that came a generation or so after. Or, uh, Zwingli was John Calvin. Um, now, John Calvin was was an absolutely brilliant man. And if you read any of his works, it is really deep, and it's really difficult uh, to fully embrace everything that he's trying to say. And when he talks about certain topics that don't have to do with, you know, predestination and things like that, I actually agree with many of the things that he comes up with. He's a very, very brilliant man. Um, and so I'm not trying to, like, throw stones or anything like that or say that he's a charlatan or anything. You'll, I, what I want you guys to discover is what the scriptures say for themselves. Um, much more so than what maybe a Calvinist might say. And one of my criticism of the Reformed Church and of Calvinism is is they, instead of... Starting with a you know, instead of starting with the scriptures and allowing theology to emerge from the Bible and from scriptures They actually start with a theology and then they turn to the scriptures to look for support Right. And so what that leads to is it leads to a lot of cherry-picking it leads to oh, you know I have this theology here And I'm going to look at this scripture and, oh, this verse looks like it kind of fits with it. So I'm going to pull that verse out. I'm going to put it over here in my theology, in support of my theology. And then I'm going to go to another book or another verse, and I'm going to do the same thing. So what they're doing is they're beginning with a theology, and then they're trying to find scriptural support. And that's kind of a very dangerous game for anybody who's trying to do biblical exegesis, right? And so I I try not to do that, uh, certainly. But this is what what a lot of Calvinists will do. If you ever... sit down and have some conversations with them, what you will see is, especially in the book of Romans, they are going to be cherry picking different verses that they believe are in support of them. And, and the other thing that they do is, is um, they actually, over a period of time, as they write different translations, they infuse words into these translations that, that support what they're trying to say. So let me give you guys an example, okay? Let me give you, uh, you guys an example. Oh, here's my Calvinist meme. Calvinism, it is your destiny. Yeah, this is, there's going to be a lot of memes throughout this service today. This is just what you get sometimes. I don't know what to say. Um, <laughs> it is your destiny. Oh, this one's kind of grim for Star Wars fans. <laughs> Probably only half the church gets it, but it's it's pretty epic. It's pretty epic (laughs) All right, we're gonna move on but you remember a few weeks ago when I when I said that I was gonna come back to Romans 8 Twenty-nine and thirty. Do you guys remember that? Because there's some Calvinist buzzwords in there, and the reason I wanted to come back to it is because um, I wanted to give you an illustration. This is to me is a perfect illustration of how translations got confused as they were written and translated by Calvinists. So let's let's read it. Okay, so. For those God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, that he might be the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. And those he predestined, he also called. And those he called, he also justified. Those he justified, he also glorified. Right? And and so you read this, and it has this word in here called uh, predestined, right? And predestined, what, what it indicates in the English language is that God chose them beforehand, meaning... That what it indicates is that if you're talking about somebody's salvation, that before you even had a choice, God determined that, you know, these are going to be the people who are saved and these are going to be the people who are going to go to hell. Right? So that's, if you read it that way, if you read that word, but what happened was this comes from Latin and the King James version of the Bible. You guys know how I feel about the King James version of the Bible. What they did with this word, this word predestined, comes from the word predestino, pre, uh, sorry, predestino, which means, quote, I provide beforehand, okay? And what that indicates is something a little bit different than what we read in English as predestined. What it, what it indicates is that the Lord provided a way to salvation for everybody before they were born, Okay, but if you read this, it says that those for those God foreknew, He also predestined to be conformed. No, He created a way by which they would have an option to be conformed. That's that's a more literal translation. Okay, and it aligns much better with this idea that God doesn't want anybody to go to hell. God has made a way for everybody throughout all of human history to find a path towards God. But that's not what the Calvinists want 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 to believe. They want to believe that everybody who came before Christ is all they're all burning in hell. Like, you know, King David, you know, all those people in the Old Testament, because they never had an opportunity to receive Christ, they're all burning in hell. Like that's that's the logical conclusion of some of these things and i'm going to get on i'm going to talk about that a little bit more But that's the idea is is that god provided a path to him for everybody all throughout human history But what happened was is when they translated the king james version king james is the one who sponsored it and kings love calvinism why do kings love Calvinism? Because they want everybody to know that God chose them to be kings beforehand. Like They wanted people to believe that there was something special about them, that God anointed them and chose them and predestined and elected them to be king. And so this is why you need to follow us. And by the way, if you're a serf or you're you know a slave or something, then God predestined that also. It was a means by which they held on to their power. So they interfused these kinds of words and language into the Bible when they translated it. And predestino doesn't actually mean what we look at as predestined today. So a more accurate translation would be something like, For God knew his people in advance, and he chose them to become like his son, so that his son would be the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. And having chosen them, he called them to come to him. And having called them, he gave them right standing with themselves. And having given them right standing, he gave them glory. That makes a little bit more sense, doesn't it? So God, he made an option, he made an opportunity for everybody to come to him, and then it's up to that person. And then once you are saved, then yes, he's going to give you right standing, he's going to give you glory, his glory, all those different things. And that's one of the main criticisms that you're going to see is this sort of cherry-picking and then translation error that supports the doctrine rather than just looking at the scriptures, okay? So, we're going to dive into Romans 9. I hope, I hope that I have enough time to go over everything that I, that I really want to cover. So, as we're going to start Romans 9. Uh, oh, yeah. <laughs> They're everywhere. They're just going to pop up. I've... <laughs> so it's, a, it's kind of a low blow. <laughs> Ugh. I don't know. Can you guys read that? And he said, my name's John Calvin. He sent me to help you understand what he really meant to say when he clumsily wrote the Bible, as if God clumsily wrote the Bible. Romans 9. I speak the truth in Christ. I am not lying, my conscience confirms it through the Holy Spirit. I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart, for I could wish that my, that I myself were cursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my people, those of my own race, the people of Israel. Theirs is the adoption to sonship, theirs is the divine glory, the covenants, the receiving of the law, the temple worship and the promises. There's other patriarchs and from them is traced the human ancestry of the Messiah who is God over all forever. Praised. Amen. So he starts, and it may seem like he's turning a little bit of a corner. And I think he is turning a little bit of a corner, but as you guys are going to see, that it's all one continuous thought throughout Romans. So he's beginning to address his Jewish brothers and sisters again. You recall this from the earlier passages in chapter in chapter two and three, okay, or in chapters two through four. Paul is specifically addressing his Jewish Jewish audience as he begins his description of the gospel. One of the main points that he was trying to make back then, he's, he's going to be making again through these passages. Because what he did and what he was saying to them was, hey, you guys were chosen to be, you know, God revealed himself to you. You guys were his sort of chosen people for a specific time period. But now that God has revealed the gospel in its fullness, I'm sorry, guys, but you're not that special anymore. That's basically what he's trying to say to the Jewish believers, because they believed that the reason that they were chosen, the reason that they were God's people, was based on their bloodline and based on their works. And so what Paul has been doing all throughout Romans, you see this theme over and over, is Paul is saying, no, it's not based on your bloodline, and it's not based in works. Grace is a free gift that is given to you from Christ And so what Paul is coming back to he already said all of that, but now he's coming back to it He laid a foundation for Theology of freedom from sin what the real gospel means and he talked about how you can be free from sin based on the spirit And now he's going back to his original He's sort of sandwiching in between and he's going back to the original thing that he was saying and basically he's saying look I love you guys. I wish that you guys would receive everything that I'm saying. I, you know, and and he would... Sacrifice himself and sacrifice his, all of his eternity with God if it meant that even one or two Jewish believers would believe in Christ. Like, that's how much he loves Jewish believers. That's how much he loves his heritage. You know, he has all these different heritages and he has all these different things, but he always goes back. Like, he is Roman. He, you know, he's, he was a Pharisee as well. He, he has all these different things, but his heart is for his Jewish friends and family to just receive Christ. And you really see that here. And I I love the the depiction where he says I, I would i would rather myself separated from christ if it meant that you guys would believe if you guys would embrace this gospel it reminds me so much of of what christ did it's just that agape love or how he sacrificed himself for us and that's what you you see that coming through the pages as paul is just yearning for them and he's and he's saying look you guys have all these things going for you this you know the patriarchy the promises uh or the patriarchs and the promises and the messiah came from your bloodline all that is amazing and I wish that you would receive this gospel Um, to me it's just it's actually just a beautiful picture of self-sacrifice but then he goes on and he brings it back and he says it is not as though God's word had failed for not all who are descended from Israel are Israel nor because they are his descendants are they all Abraham's children on the contrary it is through Isaac that your offspring will be reckoned. Now I added, uh, you know, this is not actually in scripture. I added the reference there in red. And you'll see that he, he actually has like three or four of these throughout Romans or throughout what we're going to be reading today. So that comes from Genesis 21, 12. <clears throat> in other words, it is not the, <clears throat> sorry, in other words, it is not the children by physical descent who are God's children, but it is the children of the promise who are regarded as Abraham's offspring. For this was how the promise was stated. At the appointed time, I will return and Sarah will have a son. What does all this mean? This, can, this is where this 8 starts to really get confusing here. So let me go back to the, the, previous, the previous verses. It says, not all who, sorry, for not all who are descended from Israel are Israel. That kind of is confusing, right? Well, what he's talking about is it actually has two different meanings. So he's, he's, in our modern understanding, it's not that everyone who has Jewish bloodline is going to make it into heaven. He's saying that those who are, uh, you know, those who are descended, who have the bloodline, not all of them are actually saved. That's what he's saying. Not all of them are actually God's children. Just because, so he's making a case, and he's restating, he's making a case that salvation has nothing to do with bloodline. And then he continues it, and he continues it with, with Abraham. And so now he t- starts talking about Abraham and, and Isaac, Then he restates the same thing. He says in, in, in uh, verse 7, Not because they are his descendants are they Abraham's children. Okay, same exact thing. It's not because of your bloodline that you are saved. He's trying to let the Israelites and the Jewish believers in Rome know, look. This gospel is for everybody. And even though, even though there was a time in history in which you guys were special, there was an anointing, you did have this special relationship with God, unfortunately, you're not that special anymore. Unfortunately, this gospel is for everybody. We're all special. So it's not like, okay, you're elevated here, and then you're knocked down a pedestal to be with the Gentiles. No, he's saying that you're elevated up here, but so are the Gentiles. Everybody is elevated. Everybody has an opportunity to receive Christ, but it's not based on bloodline Think about what he's been saying all throughout Romans. It's based on God's grace It's based on God making a way for you. It's based on you receiving faith in Christ It's not based on your bloodline. So then he goes and he talks about Isaac um and he restates, for this was how the promise was stated. At the appointed time, I'll return and Sarah will have a son. What does is Isaac have to do with this, right? Well, think about the story of, of Isaac, right? Think about the story. God told Abraham that he was going to give Abraham a son. And Abraham initially had faith for a time. But his wife, Sarah, didn't have faith that God was going to give him that son. And so Sarah had had Abraham sleep with her handmaid, Hagar, and they produced Ishmael, who is the firstborn son, right? So during this time period, you would think the firstborn son would get the blessing, but he didn't get the blessing because he actually wasn't produced out of faith. He was produced out of disobedience. He was produced out of lack of faith. So why does Paul bring this up? Well, he's saying that faith is what matters more than disobedience. And so he's giving this example of in the Old Testament where some child born out of faith actually receives the blessing more than the bloodline, more than the firstborn. Does that make sense? Yes. Because to me it makes it makes pretty good sense, but it actually gets a little bit more complicated because he has he adds another another curveball. So the standard the standard for Isaac is faith, and the standard for Ishmael is unbelief. So he's making that he's making that comparison. And he goes on. Not only that, but Rebecca's children were conceived at the same time by our father Isaac. Yet before the twins are born or had done anything good or bad, in order that God's purpose and election might stand <clears throat> Not by works, but by him who calls, she was told, The older will serve the younger, just as it is written, Jacob I have loved, but Esau I hated. Now, Calvinists are going to have you believe that God really did hate Esau before he was born. Rather than thinking about what Esau represents, and they're going to have you believe that God really hated Jacob or loved Jacob before he was born Now I do believe that he did love Jacob before he was born, but he also loved Esau But you look at what they represent because this is what he's doing. He's using scripture This is what Paul's doing is he's using scripture to support his ideas about God giving you unmerited uh, favor based on faith Based, He's giving you grace based on faith Well, let's let's look at the story of Jacob and Esau um Jacob and Esau have to do with works, okay? So, So God gave the anointing to Jacob. They were twins. They were born, like, basically at the same time. And God gave Jacob the blessing, even though Jacob was kind of the underhanded, crooked one, right? And so what does this say? Esau did not receive the blessing, What does this say? This says that God, not that they were elected, that God chose them before they were born to receive the blessing, but that the blessing comes not on works. If it was based on works, Esau would receive the blessing, not Jacob. Does that make sense? So he's he's making two distinctions to the Jewish audience here. The first one is, you are not saved because of your bloodline. And the second one is, you are not saved because of your works. Because if it was based on works, then Esau would have received the blessing. But here's where it gets confusing. This is where the Calvinists come in. They say, no, 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 no. These, these are buzzwords uh, like election. Okay? So they have now created an entire theology or an entire idea called unconditional election. Okay, and unconditional election is just like what it sounds. It's this idea that you were chosen before you were born. This is the main thing that we've been talking about. You were chosen, if you believe this, you were chosen before you were born to receive the blessing, receive salvation, versus uh, uh, actually having any kind of free will or free, free say-so in the matter, right? That's unconditional election. Okay. Um, <clears> okay. <throat> What I want to dive into is that these are continuous thoughts. These are all connected to the entire book of Romans. These are not, these are not thoughts that Paul is coming up with and then, and then just shifting gears into a new theology. These are all continuous thoughts. Let me ask you, what do you think is more likely, that Paul is adding to his previous thoughts about Romans and then giving scriptural support to his Jewish believers Or is it more likely that he's switching gears and introducing an entirely new thought and theology that completely unravels everything that we know about Christianity and everything that we know about the nature of God and man and how God created us in his will to have free will? I mean, we know that the reason that that relationship can exist is because of free will. If you don't have free will, you don't have relationship. I can build a computer that will love me. God can create humans and angels that will love him, but that's not real relationship. Relationship demands choice, right? So what is more likely? That Paul is creating a continuous thought all throughout the entire book of Romans? Or is he taking a nosedive into a different theology that totally unravels all of Scripture? Because I'll, I'll be honest with you, the Calvinist will have you believe that these are not continuous thoughts, that he's not talking about the same, you know, the same kinds of things, that he's not giving scriptural support. So what shall we say? Is God unjust? Not at all. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I'll have compassion on whom I have compassion. It does not, therefore, depend on human desire or effort, but on God's mercy. Now, here we go. Verse 16 is really important because he actually says what he's been trying to say. It does not, therefore, depend on human desire or effort, but on God's mercy. The same things that he was saying in chapter 4. The same thing that he's been coming back to all throughout Romans. He's not introducing a new idea or a new theology. For scripture says to Pharaoh, I raised you up for this very purpose that I might display my power in you and that your name might be proclaimed in all the earth. Therefore, God has mercy on whom he wants to have mercy and he hardens whom he wants to harden. This has always been a verse that I struggled with. Actually, I love being a pastor because it gives me an opportunity to be like, I'm actually going to dive into this and, and find a very clear, coherent answer. How many of you guys have ever struggled with reading this about Pharaoh in Exodus? Where it says that his heart is, you know, God has hardened his heart. Yeah, like it gets really confusing because that, that seems to imply, right, that free will is taken away or that maybe he never had free will to begin with. And if you're a Calvinist, if you believe there isn't any free will, then this fits perfectly. But here's what I want to say. First of all, and this, this was something that I, I, I have learned. First of all, Paul doesn't actually directly quote exodus in this like it's in quotations but it probably shouldn't be because it's actually a paraphrase they're different have you ever compared them exodus nine sixteen, but I have spared you for this very purpose that I might show you my power and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth that's a little bit different isn't it kind of big time actually I raised you up for this very purpose, that I might display my power in you, that my name might be proclaimed to the earth. That's that's different than taking away free will. He spared him so that he may show Pharaoh his power, not use Pharaoh outside of his free will to show his power. There's a difference there. And I'm going to be honest with you. I'm not quite sure why... Paul didn't exactly get it right. Maybe he didn't have a Bible right in front of him, which how many of you guys have ever paraphrased or quoted Scripture not perfectly? I sometimes don't quote Scripture perfectly. In fact, I'm I, I don't have a very good knack for it. But what he's what he's trying to get at here is he's giving this he's giving this description. Um He's giving this description because the free gift of salvation it, uh, for the sorry the free gift of grace comes about through faith in christ not our works So the point that paul is trying to make isn't that we don't have free will rather the opposite That free will is the governing law That god will use to bring about both the action to bring about his plan for his glory So let me say it another way god created this earth for us and he very rarely steps outside of the laws and the things that he created for us, right? So what does he do? He steps into our world. So when God created Eve, what did he do? He stepped into our world and he anesthetized Adam and then he created Adam out of a rib bone, right? Eve, he created Eve out of, an, out of a rib bone. He stepped into our world. Why didn't he just snap his fingers and create Eve? Because he created a world for us and he stepped into our world and he works within our world So the law that that is that god created that says that we have free will to bring about his actions Uh, To bring about his glory he stepped into that free will and he allowed pharaoh to have a hard heart This doesn't mean that pharaoh continued in his disobedience or that he didn't have an option to receive christ Or that or or that none of the none of those things not to receive christ, but to receive god It doesn't mean that he took away pharaoh's free will But he used pharaoh's unbelief at that time in his life to bring about god's will Now I want to shift gears and talk a little bit more about, I know that this is a little confusing. I'm sorry. I I, I know that this isn't the the easiest to understand. And when I read it, I think that once I understand all the different analogies that, that Paul is trying to make, he's not talking about a new theology. He's not trying to... He's not trying to give you guys or anybody else something new that is like totally out of left field. All of these things are interrelated and connected. And so he's returning to the scriptures to try to make his point to his brothers and sisters in Israel. Now, I'm going to switch gears, though, because I do want to talk a little bit more about, you know, these are the scriptures that I'm going to be that I read through today today. Um, And and I want to talk about Calvinism more specifically even though it's maybe a little off-topic or a little bit outside of Romans Okay So here are the five points of Calvinism so if you're not familiar with these, Calvinists, they, they, and a lot of people do this, we probably do this to, to some extent, and you come up with these catchphrases that make a little bit more sense, easier for people to remember. Um, and so they came up with these five points of Calvinism. There's total depra- depravity, unconditional election or sovereign election, limited atonement or definite atonement, irresistible grace, and perseverance of the saints. I'm actually only going to be talking about unconditional election today. And I already did talk about unconditional election today because the, the reality is, is that even though Calvinists will use all of the verses that I just you know talked about in support of unconditional election, um, what we talked about, everything that I shared, was was what is actually being said. So hopefully I was able to show you what is being said rather than what isn't being said. And I want to talk about. So I'm only going to be talking about uh, unconditional election today, and then next week we're going to dive into the other ones. Okay, um, and and I'll because that's really where they get into the the next scriptures where they get into the sovereignty of God. So I know some of you guys were hoping to hear about the sovereignty of God. That's next week because um, there, there there does yeah it, it makes a difference. So the, the main tenet of this one. Um, Or the main idea of this one, as I've already stated, is this this idea that everything is determined in reality by God before anything was ever created. Does that make sense? So God lives outside of time. He created time. He set this entire wheel spinning, and every atom is completely and fully controlled by God. So there's no free will. There's no choice. And what does that mean, though? There's a lot of ramifications of that, Okay. So here are the ramifications of unconditional uh, election. It removes all aspects, not all, but many aspects of God's nature. Because God, even though he created our planet and everything, he works within the confounds of that. And he can only do things that are within his nature. So God cannot uh, be devious. God cannot lie. He can't... Uh, You know, he can't sin. He can't, um, you know, all those different things, right? It also removes aspects of of the nature of man, including God's image, free will, responsibility, right? Because if you are destined to sin and be a sinner and you are destined to go to hell, then you actually have no free will uh, and you have no responsibility, so I can't say to you, oh, well, you should you know, try to do better, you should try to live more holy, you should try to do all these things. You, you actually don't have any responsibility in that because God created you that way, right? And it's the same way for people who are, who are you know, going to heaven. You, you, you also don't have any kind of responsibility for saying yes to God because you were destined to say yes to God. Um, it, I already talked about this one. It removes the reality that love demands choice. We're all robots, Uh, Love isn't even real to be fair Which again, so many of these tenets violate scripture Look all throughout scripture and you will see that God is love Everything everything about this says, you know, is just totally wrong. It just blows your mind But here's the the problem with Calvinism is that To an extent it kind of almost sounds good on paper because here's what we believe We believe that God is sovereign and we and I share that belief but where it gets confusing is they say they take sovereignty to mean that God decides everything beforehand. And they misinterpret all of these scriptures to say that we're all we're all selected beforehand, we all have you know and we don't have any free will, we don't have any choice, and they don't actually play the tape all the way through. How many of you guys have ever heard that expression, play the tape all the way through? So you have an idea like communism, right? Communism sort of looks good on paper. Not gonna lie. But if you play the tape all the way through and you include the depravity of man and you include the nature of man, every single time it's been tested in the last 150 years, it's led to unmeasurable suffering. It's led to the, you know, it's led to just horrible, horrible outcomes every single place it's been, every single place it's been tried. But it looks good on paper. So the same thing is kind of true with Calvinism. It kind of looks good on paper a little bit because you're like God is sovereign and you know all these things But if you play the tape all the way through What does it lead to? Well, it leads to prayers now obsolete I mean Why pray, why pray? you're you know, God's gonna do what God's gonna do You know, you, you don't have uh, You know, there's there's no real purpose He's not gonna like guide you or direct you because you're gonna do what you're gonna do right we already talked about it. evangelism's obsolete no point in telling people about the gospel You know because they're you know already determined to either go to heaven or go to hell It makes life obsolete think about the meaning of life because you're going to do whatever you're going to do You might as well just you know Do whatever you know there's there's no real point to anything You're not contributing to anything because what's going to happen is going to happen and this, to me, is probably the, the most offensive. It makes the cross obsolete. Right. And it makes God a, a, a cosmic child abuser. Because if the cross is obsolete, then why did Jesus have to die? Why did he endure everything that he endured? There's no point to it. Calvinists love to teach that the only possible, possible way to heaven is through receiving Christ. And it's kind of a play on words. That's sort of true. I'd say receiving God. And I do believe that God made a path For everybody to have an option to receive God and to receive Christ, whatever that looks like But if you take that in a really rigid form well that means that Every single person, and, and they do take it to a very rigid form because you played the tape all the way through, what it means is every single person who lived before the time of Christ is now burning in hell. Every single person. Like I said, um, you know Moses, Joshua, Josiah, David, Samuel, all of them separated from God for all of eternity because they... Didn't have a chance to receive Christ. In fact, all Native Americans, everybody who was born in the Americas before this time, they're all burning in hell. Again, most offensive, children too, because children can't receive Christ because they, you know, they can't confess that, that God is Lord. And if they die or if you have a miscarriage, oh, you know, hell is just teeming with like animals, right, and babies and all these people. It's, it, to me, it's just, it's just pure hatred, but it's the only logical conclusion if you follow Calvinists. Let's go straight to the, the, oh, here we have this one. So this is the first half of the meme, yeah? Biblical Christians trying to save the lost. I got you, I love you, brother. Nope. <laughs> Another one of my favorites. When you find out your significant other's a Calvinist, <laughs> I don't I feel like I don't know you anymore. You're breaking my heart. You're going down a road I can't follow. You know, I do have a, when the elders hired me, I had a required quota of Star Wars quotes that I have to do every single sermon, and I've been behind. They've talked to me about it. Uh, Steve's in the back with a clicker. You know, he's tallying them up, and he gives them a report every Sunday. Shane does the same thing with grace. He's not here today. He's listening at home, and he's like, Well, John's only said grace eight times today. He, re- he requests that I say 15. Every sermon, I have to say grace 15 times. Let's take it straight from the horse's mouth. This is John Calvin himself. This is a book called Institutes of the Christian Religion. It was published in 1536. It's a 1,277 page document. I didn't read the whole thing. I only read like the first couple hundred pages. Yeah, nobody's read it. It actually reminds me of bills that politicians pass in Washington. (laughs) 1,200 pages. It's like something simple, you know, and they hide all this other stuff in it. (laughs) In chapter 4, of this book uh, entitled, How God Works in the Heart of Man. Calvin is attempting to reconcile the evil acts of Satan in the book of Job, but with Calvinism in mind, with predestination in mind. And if you look at page 136 in this document, and you can find it, you can Google it, you can look it up. Here's what he says. We thus see that there is no inconsistency in attributing the same act to God, to Satan, and to man. Straight from John Calvin. Play the tape all the way through. Satan actually doesn't have free will. Because God created him to do what he was going to do. None of us have free will. So when we sin, not only are we not responsible, but... It's actually God sending through us. Now the sad part is, is that rather than coming to this conclusion and and changing his mind, running away as, as fast as possible, or even like modifying it in some way, this was what he believed until the day he died. This is what he he doubled down on this. Now, when you encounter Calvinists, they're not going to say this. They're not. I, I mean, to me, you know, it, it, that's all you need to do is just say, like, uh, you know, if, if you don't have any free will, nobody has any free will, then everything that Satan and his demons do, it's actually God doing these things. If you, if you follow that to its logical conclusion, everybody should run away from this doctrine. I, I mean, it, it goes totally in the face of everything in Scripture. And again I go back to my old my question. Do you think that Paul was, you know, tracking along and repeating some of the things that he had been saying in Romans and then giving scriptural support for those same things that he talked about in chapters 2 and 3 and 4? Or do you think that he's trying to turn up the entire gospel and everything, the Old Testament, everything that we know about the nature of God, man, and, and, and demons and angels and the devil? You think Paul is just trying to like destroy all of that for a new theology in eight verses? I frame it like that because it's absurd, but that's what Calvinists will have you believe. They'll have you believe, Oh yeah, Paul's just turning a corner here and he's now he's introducing, you know, unconditional election and all this stuff and all these reasons. No, he's not doing any of that stuff. It's a continuous message. It's a continuous letter. He's not introducing this doctrine. I believe this to be an evil doctrine. And most of them are never, not never, but most of them will never follow it to its logical conclusion if you're in any kind of a conversation or debate with them. They'll never follow it to its logical conclusion. And this is the logical conclusion, straight from John Calvin. You can look up this verse, or not verse, but you can look up that quote. So as we close, I'm going to invite the worship team. I'm going to invite the worship team, and praise God we have free will, right? Hallelujah, we have free will. And it's not just free will to accept Christ and to receive salvation. It's, it's free will to actually have agency in our lives. Now, I know that there's some people in this congregation who have, who have the lives that they want, and they're satisfied with those lives. It doesn't mean they're perfect, but people have the lives that they want. And it's, and it's because they believe that they have free will, they have agency. It's because they believe that they can shape and mold their life. It's because they believe that they, you know, that, that they create their life and their friends and their relationships. Now, of course, it's with God and it's with the power of the Holy Spirit and all of these things. You're working in this beautiful, beautiful communion. But then I know that there's other people who believe that life just happens to them. Like, I'm miserable because life just happens to me and that I don't really have any free agency. Now, I, I hope that everybody leaves here today believing that you have free will, of course, to accept Christ. But I also want to encourage those who really struggle with the lives that they have right now. Because it's not just free will to accept Christ. It's free will to actually shape the life that you want. And sometimes it takes a long time. I realized this in 2007, and I decided to commit myself to a 20-year plan to having the life that I want. And And I'll tell you that I came in there under 20 years. I'm happy to say that I have the life that I want. But it's because with the power of the Holy Spirit, I believe that I have agency and I can affect change in my life. I can create the life that I want. So I'm speaking to those in here who don't have the life that they want. You have the power to change and create the life that you want. You have the power to actually exercise free will in your life. It's not the world happening to you and you just reel and you know, it's, it's you actually taking the buck by its horns and doing something different and building a beautiful future for yourself. Now, it's not easy, and sometimes you need advice and you need people to help you along the way. That's probably why you're part of a church. And, of course, you need the leading of the Holy Spirit and the anointing and the blessing of the Holy Spirit, but you have the ability to create something for yourself that will give you satisfaction more often than not. Not perfection, but you have the power to actually create a beautiful life for yourself. So take hold of it take hold of it don't let any more time slip by don't waste what you've been given it's a beautiful gift this life is a beautiful gift and we live in one of the most opportunistic places in the entire world and really in the the entire world has ever known you didn't have these kinds of opportunities even a hundred years ago certainly not a thousand years ago you have been given a beautiful gift you can create a beautiful life for yourself And then you know what? You can start helping others create a beautiful life for themselves. That's what it means to be part of a church. But you are not walking through life as a victim. You are not walking through life just allowing things to happen to you that you can't control. And, and, And yeah, there are some things that you can't control that happen to you. But the Lord is for you. He's going to help you have a good life. He doesn't want you to be miserable. He wants you to persevere and have satisfaction and enjoy what he's given you. Let's stand and worship the Lord. Thank you for tuning in to Community Vineyard Podcast. If you enjoyed this week's message, click the share button and be sure to subscribe to our channel so that you'll be notified of our latest content. To learn more about Community Vineyard Church or how you can partner with us, please visit our website at www.communityvineyard.org. Until next time.